Cool. Yeah, dude. Right on. Um, so we were going to start with the cyber textbook and not spend very long. Uh, perhaps just kind of give an intro to it and um, some, I don't know, greasy little takes uh, from what we read. I read, you know, I, I put kind of scarecrow quotes around that. Uh, not scarecrow quotes, but scare quotes. Uh, like, I, I did read all the words in the book. Right. Um, <laughs> like, like I've said a few times. Like, They're all I don't think I, yeah, yeah, I don't feel like I totally got it. Um, ben, you said you read a few of the chapters. Yeah, I read the first three, and I, I was impressed. Like, the project I felt was good. Um, as you know, abstruse as it was, like the the fact that um, Arseth is it Arseth? I think so. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The fact that he was going to sort of like reevaluate all of the the semiotic categories for you know texts across the board. You know, he sort of stresses that that's an ambiguous term. And he likes it that way. Um, I, I think that that was a really valuable project. It's something that I've kind of been pushing for personally in a long time, and it's never taken off. Like, I, I can, you know, bang on my texts are more complicated than just words on a page drum all day, and it doesn't matter. Uh, but he's making a really strong case for it, I think. Um, and his divisions and his sort of recognition that the, the systems of, you know, like Umberto Eco and, and Roland Barthes and you know, the Saussurian and, and Persian, like all of their categories surrounding the way that we interpret uh, language has kind of fallen short in the face of technology where texts move and change and adapt. And, you know, like the, the interaction of the reader with the text cre like creates new places for the text to go. Um, like, you just, you can't talk about video games with literary theory words, in short. Like, right. the jargon just doesn't fit. Um, so, you know, he's looking for a system. And that's, you know, absolutely necessary. And to, like, any ability for semiotics to talk about this stuff... Um, obviously I don't think it caught on, <laughs> uh, because most oh. of the couple, the couple of semiotic, like, essays I've seen that, that have really sort of engaged with, with, you know, typically video game characteristics have not adapted the language, I, I don't think, but nonetheless, it, it's a really important project and, you know, something like this needs to happen. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. Um, and this is a really foundational piece uh it gets cited a lot it seems like it just comes up a lot that's good um and i don't know that much about his background um whether he comes at this from a literature side or uh a programming side or a little bit of both um it does seem like he's pretty well versed in a lot of different fields um and you mentioned semiotics. Yeah. Could you give like a quick, <laughs> I don't know, is it possible? Uh, it, it just like, what do you mean by that? And it, it's like something to do with signs? Yeah, semiotics is the study of, of signs. Like officially, you know, in the way that biology is the study of life, like semiotics is the study of signs. And I, it's such a weird discipline, like, 
it very much grew out of linguistics. Um, Saussure in his, oh, I forget what the name of the book is, the, the course on general linguistics, um, he, Saussure mentioned that like linguistics really had two primary functions. On the one hand, you had to, you had to be able to examine the language as language, like the, the physical sounds that are made, the, the symbols that represent those sounds, like how language functions on a sort of scientific and uh, purely observational statistical sense, but also as it functioned in terms of meaning. And so Sears says, you know, linguistics is the side that does the science bit, but there should be another discipline called semiotics in theory that talks about the meaning. Um, and as far as I can tell, while there are semioticians, there's not ever been a semiotics department, so to speak. <laughs> like, it is very much the least official discipline I've ever had the, the pleasure of not encountering. Um, <laughs> But the, the weird thing about it is that, you know, they have everything else. Like, there are certain scholars in the field who are recognized as important, like, major figureheads, like Umberto Echo, like Roland Barthes. Um, and, you know, in, in addition to, you know, their obvious, like, these are semiotics people, you also have, like, a lot of people being sort of dragged in from other disciplines, like Gadamer, who's, you know, technically a sociologist, but he's, like, fought over by semioticists and philosophers, like, Derrida is very interested in semiotics, even though he's technically coming at it from a different perspective, like, at the end of the day, like, as much as semiotics does have its textbooks and does have its, like, foundational texts, it's very much kind of like the the place where linguistics and philosophy and sociology and, like, data theory all kind of just bump into each other. Um, it is defined as much by negative space as it is by positive space. Um, the way that I sort of stumbled across it and just found myself like falling deeper and deeper into this particular hole um, was actually because of uh, film critic Hulk. Uh, he is a semiotics guy. Like he studied it formally. Um, usually at, at most universities, you will hear it referred to as the communications department. Um, oh God. Yeah. Really? All those communications majors are technically studying semiotics. Um, they don't Brilliant. know it most of the time. <laughs> Again, Trojan <laughs> horse discipline here. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, semioticians, they, they, they very much range, and they usually end up in categories depending on what they study. So, like, there are semioticians who are sort of, you know, half connected to the literary theory world. Um, there are semioticians, there are a lot of semioticians who are sort of, like, half connected to, to the film studies world. Um, and there are increasing numbers of semioticians who are attached to the video game world. Um, the yeah. theorists, you know, your Echoes and your Barts, um, are few but really foundational. And they're the ones who are connected more to, like, actual linguistics or actual philosophy of language. Um, but it's a weird discipline. Um, but a lot of fun. Like, it's very open because it is so ill-defined. Um, and Arseth's, like, he very clearly operates there. Um, like, yeah. he's dropping all the right names. It's, it's obvious that that is as much as training as anything else. Um, if, 
like, if anything, I see that the other side of it is he's an information theory guy. Like, he's got the math. Um, like, when he's plotting all of the variables in Chapter 3, um, like, it, it's very clear that, you know, he's coming at it from, like, the analytic philosophy side with all of their, you know, number theory and, and information theory. And, like, it's, yeah, it gets wild. Um, again, it connects to everything. Um, but yeah, like seeing his, his references, the, the names that he's dropping, the, the texts that he's referencing, he's Saussure and his consciousness of Saussure and Peirce, his frequent references to Echo and, and Bart, and, uh, the guys who are sort of drawing from them. Um, yeah, like that's where I peg him, um, in this weird non-discipline. <laughs> and that seems to be his project, right, is to try to get some kind of shape around like limits around this and what's in and what's out and and establish this thing uh, yeah. um, and, and yeah he's got really interesting diagrams that go oh, yes. <laughs> the book some images that uh are really fun but i think um, he's also really on point insofar as he's recognizing that like as as this technology develops, which again, he's sort of de-emphasizing the, the actual technology part of, of sort of yeah. these changes, um, like instead preferring to, to talk about like the, the old, you know, like composition number one with its, you know, you can make like 150,000 poems or whatever. Um, like these books that sort of allow you to compose works within the books. Um, emphasize that, you know, just because it's paper or just because it's digital doesn't actually make the distinguishing difference. Instead, it's these other factors. Um, I think he's, he's very keen to notice that as, you know, the boundaries of what constitutes a text are being pushed by these artists, it's just drawing attention to how inadequate um, some like the current categories for semiotics really are um, like we need to, we need to go back and do a complete like from the foundations reevaluation. We need to, you know, like ex even in, in that sort of binary that he recognizes the sort of like reader versus writer binary. He's like, well, clearly the text is a third part like Derrida is talking about, but the relationships are way more complicated than anyone has been talking about. Um, you know, especially now that we're in a place where, like, an artist can present, you know, only half of the text, and now your interaction with the artist is how the text is composed, you know, that just opens up so much. Um, and this, this book comes out in 97. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, it's uh, at an interesting point where there is a lot for him to draw on, but uh, it also, you don't have... Um, things that have come since then that could maybe interact with these theories in, in interesting ways. Um, but absolutely, yeah, to, to give us kind of a, um, he calls it the textual machine at uh, that triangle with the, um, the, uh, the verbal sign, the medium, the operator, and somehow that circumscribes text slash machine. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the process, right, of working with a text to get meaning out of it, um, he calls it uh, ergodic if it's non-trivial work you have to do, meaning you're doing more than reading the words off the page. Now, as I said, like, even just reading words off a page when you're reading something like this is non-trivial, I would say. <laughs> oh, for sure. 
his book is is ergodic in a, in his definition as I'm understanding it. Um, right. So, but I think he's he's definitely pointing out like no, I don't mean it in this like metaphorical way. I mean like you literally would have to do some activity. Yes. Uh, interact with the book, then by turning the pages and reading the words and thinking about them. Right. You'd have to uh, say push a button, uh, right. click a link, uh, or whatever it might be. Or in uh, some and I mean, cases, yeah. just wait, like he mentions the one, sure. you know, it just proceeds at a fixed time and you're just sort of like catch as catch can. Um, but I'm also kind yeah. of struck by, you know, on the one hand, like, I, I find myself, again, like pushing back on the variables, like trying mul endlessly multiplying the, the sort of situations. You know, on the one hand, I, I think of like, what about the, the video game that is, you know, linear, that is proceeding, you know, at a mm -hmm. fixed pace? Like, yes, you have to walk down an endless hallway or something, but that's really all you have to do. Um, like, there, there is no exploration. There is, does that constitute user input? Like, if your only options are stop or go, like, keep playing or turn off the game, does that constitute actual you know user interaction in that non-interpretive way um and likewise i think of something you know which honestly i'm kind of surprised he's not attentive to i think of something like dungeons and dragons where the text is literally just a jumping off point um where you know you have all these books that describe you know the rules of the game so to speak and then it's entirely creative like what you have from a player's handbook and what you get in an actual D and D session are just miles apart. Um, and I, I kind of wonder how that would fit in, like where it's not just a matter of, you know, you're, you're interacting with like another person using the, the rules of the game, but rather just building the rules of the game based on the rules of like an even bigger game. Um, it, it just, no, yeah. That's yeah. It's kind of like the muds. He's very into the muds. Yes. Uh, I think that's a late chapter where he really digs into that. But um, but they sort of occupy their little quadrant of another really cool diagram he has that like plots right. where all these different kinds of interactive text would fit uh, according to like I don't a whole bunch of different um, yeah the seven variables he's talking about. It's yeah. it's a nut. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he's doing the whole like, oh, so there's seven dimensions, but like some of them are trivial, so we're going to compact it down to just these two dimensions, and it's going to retain 49% of the data. It's like, what? <laughs> it, it's a little oh, bit man. much, but but it's cool. And yeah, um, you get some fun shapes that, again, sort of delimit where different kinds of things fall. And yeah, I mean, um, a mud, right, that kind of... Um, text space uh, to me feels similar to what you're describing, you know, like um, a, a, a game where you're playing a role essentially, but you have a lot of freedom to craft it and yes. interact with other people and come up with kind of your own uh, improvised storyline yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, so the things that really impressed me about this book, um, I think like you, his, his mastery, of a really broad swath of other material, mm -hmm. um, his brazenness and sort of like throwing his elbows around and, and saying, no, not literature, but yes, this kind of interesting interactive text thing. Yeah, and he's um, not afraid to just like 
upset apple carts and kick over yeah. existing traditions. Like there, there were a couple times where he was like, Hey, this guy has this system and he's clearly focused on just this bit. So it's not really helpful and we're going to get rid of it. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, but also the, um, the kind of conclusions he draws, uh, he, he seems to be continually sort of starting fresh with each of these chapters. And, um, it just is uh, really invigorating in a way to see this kind of panorama uh, of possibilities that open up um, uh, when you start to think about things uh, with a, a different lens, um, this lens of the ergodic, as he calls it, um, or the cyber text. Um, but uh, there was, um, I think, a few different times he sort of touches on um, what he means by ergodic and it's a little different each time i gotta say uh so i i feel like maybe it's not a completely uh worked out idea that he's presenting here which you know is okay um i think he does bring up dungeons and dragons at some point okay. i can't find it now but uh i'm, I'm kind of searching through right um okay there you go yeah um when he's doing a little bit of historical overview, he says the Dungeons and Dragons genre might be regarded as an oral cybertext, the oral predecessor to computerized written adventure games. And um, and that's like the last thing he really says about that. Um, he's talking about adventure, uh, the, the great cave adventure, you know, the original yeah. text adventure thing. Um, but uh, he actually starts, I wonder if you noticed this, he starts with a quote from Italo Calvino it's rad um, oh, yeah. uh, where he calls literature a combinatorial game um, so I just I really like the idea that in the same way that you can you can try I guess and fail as he sees it to apply like literary concepts to video games you could almost turn that around and say you know apply video game derived concepts to literature. Yeah. I, I like the kind of back and forth that's um, it's introduced there when you start to think in these systematic ways. Yeah. Um, so well, anytime that I find myself sort of like trying to understand, trying to find a way that, you know, we approach media or art in this fashion, trying to find some way to express how it is that video games and literature are ultimately occupying the same space and doing the same things to us. I find myself just inevitably driven, like even more than, than in the sense of a machine. I, I typically think of it in terms of boundaries for an experience. Um, yeah. Like as much as I know that that's more reader focused than, than author focused. Um, I, I find that like, that's a pretty rich place to, to sort of start one's investigation to, stop thinking of you know in terms of the, the the matter of the thing like is it you know a program running on a computer or is it a, a book made out of paper or is it you know even like a, a, a work of visual art something completely non-linguistic um as well as you know a movie or like a, a performance or um even a musical composition um like, as much as that is not his field, the semiotician draws the line at, like, does it have language, um, which I always find a little dodgy because, you know, art can do symbols that aren't linguistic. 
um, and semioticians are sign people, not necessarily just linguistic sign people. Um, yes, I, I meaning think, people. Yes, they're interested in the meanings that come through. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think that like the the boundaries that you know Arseth is is drawing here, the the sort of way that he's sort of pushing um, his understanding of, of you know literature by like understanding video games. It needs to go farther. Like we need, we need to see even bigger, um, the sort of really basic and really foundational relationships between, you know, the artist, the the thing that the artist devises, and the person who receives the experience. Um, like I, I think at the end of the day, the only way to sort of quantify it, especially when you're getting into these these situations where like who the artist is and who the, the like reader or player or recipient is start to blur. Um, at the end of the day, you have to talk about that shared experience, that sort of like space that is being delineated or not um, in some cases by the artist. Um, so yeah, just again, like me sort of trying to put together my own system and figure out my own sort of semiotic understanding of the universe, but you know, that's the thing. Like, this book definitely fired my imagination and sort of put me in my boxing stance. Like, I, I want to, you know, pick it apart and see what he, see what he has to offer, what, what I can take and what I can sort of expand upon, but also, you know, pick fights and see where things start to fall apart. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I hope this quick introduction uh, at least encourages people to, to, to take up this book. Uh, it's, it's relatively short, you know, it's, uh, it is dense, uh, but you don't have to read it all uh, sort of at a go because each chapter really is kind of a fresh yes. start uh, in, in a new kind of direction. Um, they really, they really feel more like sort of separate essays that are gathered together yep. uh, than, than, a, than a coherent, you know, long, argument he's really still working out his argument I feel like yeah. and, and that's cool it's it's exciting so could you read it in any order then <laughs> I feel like you could. Yeah. oh man yeah now, now we're definitely cybertext as cybertext here um, <laughs> what was that the Kelly Graham that he was particularly keen to talk about there where you just you know he, he even mentions at one point that like the great thing about a book is that you can open to any page at any time like all words are equally accessible at any moment um, and, yeah in a way a book is more free right yeah. and so he really takes issue with people who say like oh this is great it's like giving freedom and creativity to the re the reader interactor or whatever and he's like no yeah. a lot of these like force you to do stuff yeah, that you don't have to see the ending of near automata until you've played through all the levels leading up <laughs> to it but you know anytime you want you turn the last page of your book you read the last sentence you're good to go uh, yeah yeah Corey, i would say playing flip streets through. of rage <laughs> right streets of rage yeah. and at the very end if you decide to join them then you oh. just get started at the very beginning again that's yeah. like the only choice you get throughout the whole game. There's like levels upon levels, and it it, it took Stephanie and I a while to beat. And we d were like, "Yeah, let's join you." And then we got sent to the very beginning. It it only took us like one try to get through it the second time, though. That's good. That's awesome. But uh, I was kind of thinking about that where you were saying you can just go forward, and then how that one kind of threw that right at the end. It's like double, go through it like twice as far. Yeah. But I do like how near automaton. 
like you get to go through it a second time but is it i hope it's different a little bit i trust it will be yeah. I, I i hope it will be too. Well, I mean, um, at the very least like you know again getting into my putting on my semiotics hat like you can never play the same game twice like you in the same way that Heraclitus is like you can never step into the same river twice, you know. Even the the second playthrough of Near Automata does change a little bit. Like you you will not be left wanting, but at the same time, like a lot of it is perspective. Um, you know, having seen all of what the first playthrough has to offer, a lot of the second playthrough is how do you deal with the recontextualization of your actions. Um, you know, like, we, we went through this whole desert area. Like watching The Usual Suspect twice? Yeah, yeah. Or, like, you know, one of my favorites, uh, Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. Like, there's this big reveal at the ending that totally changes the way that the character motivations work once you understand what's going on. Um, you know, like, that's, that's very much going on here as well. Um, so, you know, a lot of the things that are kind of innocuous and, and seemingly unimportant in the, in the first playthrough, once you're playing it through again, it, you find yourself in a considerably more compromised position, let's say. I see that. I see. So let's go to the desert then. Um, that's where we left off last time. And uh, there's sort of two two stages to the desert uh you you get like a little mini one like a transition area um where you meet jackass yep. right uh and then there's the the, the the desert proper right it uh kind of gives you this view of it um that, that lingers for a while on some of the features out there well i didn't um, go so far as to say there's a third section like you, you go through that little starting area, the desert proper, and then the, the city. Departments, the yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that does seem like a kind of um, mirror image, right, of the city that we've been exploring, mm -hmm. uh, which is lush, has megafauna uh, and giant trees um, and fish. And then there's this other city out there in the desert that we discover. Um, yeah, yeah, and where weird things happen. <laughs> yes, and uh, you know it is very not alive. Like there, there is, there are no animals. There are no trees. It is very barren. Like way more what you would expect when told that you know you're looking at a post-apocalyptic uh, environment. Like everything is gone. Nothing is left except, of course, the machines. Right. Right. Um, and so far, we have entered. We have entered a place where um, machines have started getting aggressive, right? Because we have to do that one side quest. Um, so machines out here in the desert, and that's sort of our mission, right? Is to go and just clear them out. Uh, and um, they, they are different. Uh, we notice some things about them. Steve, I think right away you noticed that they like to stand on each other's shoulders and make really tall stacks or like they're just yeah i don't know if they're necessarily standing on each other's shoulders but they're just kind of like pointless machines where it's just very cylindrical there's they don't have any arms they can't hurt you um, <laughs> and the first time i played it i i didn't even want to attack them yeah <laughs> well they're, they're no threat um yeah. so 
But yeah, well, I don't understand what the point of them was, but I guess you could say that about all the machines. <laughs> well, I, I See, think like what's so strikingly interesting about those is that, you know, it, it's... I, I always imagine them as having done it to themselves. Like, you know, they're, they've just made themselves taller um, as some sort of, like, posturing towards, towards being better. Um, yeah. Like, you think of, you know, in, in Super Mario Odyssey, you keep running across all those Goombas standing on each other's heads. And you can, exactly. like, take the hat up, put the hat on the top one, and you can steer the whole stack around. Um, that's very much what they look like here. Like, they're admittedly not, like, independent entities standing on each other's heads, but it's, like, obviously this machine has, like, six bodies that they just stacked, like one on top of the other and now they're just a really tall machine and he just seems so pleased with himself <laughs> like this is this is the, the person he wants to be now um, and I, I think that that's something that's something kind of unique about them is that you know they all have the same head the like same two eyes that sort of glow and yellow or red when they're hostile um, but the, there's such a wide variety of shapes and sizes and configurations and um, you, you get the sense that they are somehow experimenting with themselves, like artic articulating some part of themselves the way that like, we wear you know, bright colors to express our mood or you know, put on, wear accessories to like, accentuate our, our characteristics. You know, th these, are, these are machines who are asserting themselves by adding parts or, you know, hot-rotting themselves. <laughs> Souping themselves up. About yeah. those machines that were, like, imitating um, human nature? Yes. You, you remember that part? Yeah. It kind of, like, breathed by it. But it was uh, kind of graphic, I guess. Ooh, um, some of yeah. them were. Yep. But they were all doing things that were, like, that weren't, like, obviously that one was not something a robot would, or a, a machine would do to replicate <laughs> they're like imitating a human humans i guess yeah or, i think that's like yeah. the thing that's the most striking about all the machines in the desert is they're they're not behaving like machines um like even when you're out in the dunes and you know 9s mentions oh they're they're talking these machines talk and, and yeah. Nines, like dismisses it. Yeah, they're they're observing this. Don't pay it any mind. It's still just random nonsense. But it's very contextual. Like now we've got machines who who run a, who are afraid of you. They're like afraid, fear, scared. Um, yes. And they attack you. And Nines dismisses that behavior. Like, oh well, if they were really afraid of us, they'd just run away, right? And then the one does run away, and you chase it, like. <laughs> <laughs> what what is the criteria for not being human in this case? Because those goalposts keep moving every time you run into something new in this area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're so they're first different because they're tall and and they kind of peer down at you, but they don't attack. Um, then and they're wearing clothes. They're talking. They're the uh, masks, maybe in the yeah, yeah. The, oh yeah, they're, they're the masks and things, um, and they're running away. And they're and what they're saying is yeah, emotionally uh, charged, right? Their, their their key words are all powerful emotions. Uh, so things they're doing, the things they're saying, the way they kind of comport themselves, all point to them being um, 
know, sentient, uh, having feelings, having consciousness, possibly. Um, but of course, by definition, they're machines, so they yeah. can't have any of those things, right? Uh, I, I yeah. Frequently, end up thinking there's a there's a great essay I teach in, in my ethics class when I get the opportunity to teach it. Um, it's I forget the name of the essay, but it's one of Peter Singer's um, arguments for for um, considering animals to be, if not ethical agents, then ethical recipients. Like we should treat animals with as much respect as humans, is what he's essentially arguing, um, and not because animals are as, so. yeah, not because animals are as smart as humans. Or they don't have a voice, but they do feel pain. Um, and at the end of the day, that's what Singer is arguing. Like, suffering should only depend on the ability to feel pain. Like, you, you do not have the right to lord yourself over a dog because you can speak language or, you know, build buildings. If a dog suffers, feels pain because of something you do, that pain is just as, like, ethically valid as your own. Um, and he frequently ends up talking about like pain behavior um you know even in the case of of animals that you know we don't typically understand as expressing pain behavior stuff like you know spiders or flies you know you you can tear off a fly's wings and watch it like fling itself around it suffers or seems to um and the machines are demonstrating that here you know, as much as you want to dismiss them, oh, it's just random bits and bobs, you know, Peter Singer would be the first to say, you know, no, that's pain behavior. Like, if they're saying mm -hmm. afraid, run, afraid, or for that matter, afraid and attack, as they do in the city, um, mm -hmm. like, he would, he would, I can't help but think that he'd say, yeah, that's pain behavior. That's absolutely anything that is trying to get away or trying to change the way that you're you're interacting with it, that constitutes you know a reason to do things one way or the other. That suddenly makes the situation ethical, um, which just brings in all these tricksy questions about video games. Um, Interesting, because, yeah. Because you know if anything is programmed to you know, suffer pain, to scream when you shoot it, or to, to run away when you attack it, or anything like that, you know, by that logic, you are doing harm. You know, as much as, as, much as we, we sort of generally understand video games are a safe place, you know, here you can express your violent tendencies with zero consequences, <laughs> I think Yoko Taro is very seriously questioning that here. Um, and sort of very clearly bringing up that, you know, if it acts like it's suffering, how, who are you to decide that it isn't? I think a nice kind of case study for that is the pod, right? Didn't, Steve, didn't you say you found an extra pod out in the desert? Yes, yeah. an extra pod out in the desert. And, and that's mentioned, I think one of the, people in the resistance camp even says like you can find other pods they're pretty rare but you might find them in the desert or even like in the depths of the sea so i'm expecting at some point we'll do like an underwater level and uh there might be an extra pod there too but um but they're you know they're not androids uh and yet they they like to fish they like to um help right and 
they don't seem to feel pain per se, but they definitely um, can sense it, right? In the sense of like, they literally have the ability to, to kind of tap in and um, tell you about what other things are feeling and what they're like. Uh, they can find you stuff out there on the map and show you the mini map and where different things are located and all that stuff. So, so they have like very refined powers of what sensation, observation, self-awareness. Um, even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they give suggestions. They you you start to you know you you pet them like they are little animals. Uh, you definitely start to have a bond with your your pod. Um, so, if that's you know something that you care about, then a fortiori, I feel like you know the robots that are you know showing you all this pain behavior, <laughs> as you put it in Singer's language, right? Like you should you should definitely probably they should give pause at least. Um, and so I'm, I'm confused by 9S's insistence here because he's like really suspicious of um, command or at least a little suspicious of command. He brings that up a few times and yet he seems to be totally gung-ho about destroying you know, all, the, all the robots this time around. I'm um, also struck too by, you know, especially as you are getting into the city and you know, 9S's comment that, like, if it's really afraid, why would it be attacking you? And that sort of is explored here just a little bit, but in a particularly rich way, I think. Like, when you're ambushed in the city, you, they they say, you know, you are afraid, you are fearful, you are scary, and so we must destroy you. Um, yeah. Like, at this sort of extremely primitive level you know as much as as Corey pointed out like they're emulating human behavior here we are you know emulating possibly the most basic components of human behavior the the fight or flight tendency the you know destroying a thing because it threatens us um attacking a thing because we are afraid of it um i, I think like there's something very fundamentally human and for that matter animal about that behavior, like um, being afraid of a thing doesn't mean just running away. It means trying to eliminate the thing if possible. And the, the fact that you're just mowing them down just makes it all that much more strange and uncomfortable. And then when you do finally get to you know the boss arena, and as Corey pointed out, like here are these machines, the one rocking the cradle, um, the one, the, the machines like trying to perform intercourse with each other. Um, like it is really uncomfortable and kind of weirdly graphic. And, you know, it, it's just strange. Like they're just banging into one another and you're just like, what is, that's not how that works. Um, but at the same time, here you've been fighting through wave after wave after wave of these machines wearing their masks and machines attacking you, machines who are supposedly afraid but refuse to run away. Is it because they're protecting something? Is it because you're not just threatening them on an individual basis, but, you know, that's a very hunter-gatherer thing that, like... When a threat arises, the women and children stay at home and the men go out and fight in the hopes that their, you know, their kids, their genetic bloodline, if you want to read it in some Darwinist way, won't be destroyed, mm -hmm. won't be threatened. Um, 
And there's something to be borne out there. As uncomfortable as it is. Well, you could also think of it like like the Borg, possibly. Like there's one that has is sentient and is kind of connected to the rest, like a hive mentality. Yeah. And maybe that's why they're being defensive in a way. Especially because, you know, possibly. as soon as you bust in there and start breaking heads, the first thing they do is they all get together and they produce whatever the random humanoid machine, as 9S calls it, is. Um, yes. Like... That's it's it's a tough thing to read. Like there's a lot of of symbolism there for sure, but you know, like the Borg, there's there's sort of this implication that there is this one governing intelligence, this one thing that is sort of controlling them, um, something that they were protecting, but is also something that can then protect them. Um, and it's just it's weird like it flips a lot of what we've been told at this point around because it's human in all of the ways that we were told that machines are not and it almost be, all yeah, almost all almost well, it so it doesn't have genitalia nope. uh or at least the game isn't showing us if it does um, <laughs> yeah i don't know if it looks exactly, exactly like sephiroth like it's a dead ringer yeah um <laughs> <laughs> like the way that Sephiroth appears when he's uh, in the nude, uh, frozen in the crystal, right? The materia, or whatever it is. Um, and the uh, yeah, the form that they take to to birth this being is is very like uh, army ant or something, right? They like climb up the walls of this ruined apartment. Um, they climb, climb uh, over each other and form this kind of like womb structure. It cracks open, and you know, this little oozy, yeah, to all appearances human uh, thing, fully formed, falls out. Uh, and as that fight goes on, that creature gains a bunch of levels. Yes. Right. Uh, if you watch the HP gauge and the status bar above. It, uh, him, it, she, I don't know. It's very androgynous. Um, but uh, the levels go up, right, gradually. And by the end of the fight, it's probably like you know, twice your level or, or nearly. Um, and it's scary how powerful it is. Uh, yeah, 9S has that one line about you have to defeat it quickly because it's learning. Um, yeah. And the behavior it demonstrates is like that. Like it, Initially, it doesn't attack you. Um, it'll just stand there, um, mm -hmm. and you can you can just stand there too. Like you do not have to engage in combat, but you know the game will not progress until you do. But you know you can just run around in circles for twenty minutes if you want. It'll just it'll just stand. It's only when you start to attack it that it starts responding. First by moving around the arena, then by acting defensively, like it has the, the shield that it does, and then it'll counterattack if you attack it while it's shielding. And then finally, it starts its own attacks. Like it has its first just the sort of like laconic, lackadaisical kick that just does massive damage if you happen to be anywhere near it. Um, and then finally it gets, you know, typical boss attacks, like warping around the arena and firing giant, like, blasts out of the ground at you like it gets yeah. way scarier um 
And as much as 9S is telling you to like hurry up and beat it, the more you hurry, the faster it becomes powerful and scary. Um, it's very much your own fault that it's as frightening as it is. And I thought we we should mention too, right, that there's this other mystery about this place. As you're getting close to the the hiding place, um, the refuge of the of the machines there, you start to see a bunch of android bodies yes. strewn about, um, all dead. Some of them you can interact with the way that we've been taught to interact with fallen androids. Um, but most you can't. They're just sort of um, background, you know. And it's like very ominous. Like, why are they all here? Were they gathered here? Um, did they you know, find their way here and expire, or or what? Um, and some of the machines, when they see you, they say uh, meat, right? They, that's what they call you. So they're like hunting you, like you said, hunter gatherer style. Um, so that's my kind of take on that is these are things that have been harvested by the machines uh, the other part something like that the yeah. other thing that I, I'm kind of struck by like especially when you when you find that whole bunch of Android like all of the corpses strewn around like one of the most noticeable qualities is that the one of them is like impaled like strung up on a pike or something. And mm. it's got a very Lord of the Flies sense of it, too. Like, the, the, you know, you, you put the head on the pike to communicate to your enemies that this is unsafe, like, as a warning. Um, you know, you, you put the, the pig's head on the pike, and it, it tells the beastie to stay away. Um, <laughs> and, you know, again, that's a... that's. As, as much as that's like more of a symbol and art than it probably is in actual like anthropology, um, it, it's still an evocative image. And, and you like the fact that they have gathered all the bodies there. Certainly there's, there's that meat that we should be asking about, especially when all of a sudden the machines produce something that looks alarmingly like an android. Um, but at the same time, like we've got to think of this in terms of this is the warning. This is them telling us to stay away um, yeah. in a very sort of primitive and very effective way. Yeah. And you're not taking the message, right? Like you say, the oh, game... Yeah. You just charge right in. Won't, yeah, it won't progress unless you do... And, and you, can, uh, you, know, you can try not to attack the machines either, but ultimately... The one that's been running the whole time will will start fighting back as yeah. if you've been hacking them, right? Because the game sort of yeah assumes or forces you to do that to fight them and then trigger their generation of this being. Um, and uh, as you're fighting it, um, you you get this kind of animation at the end of the battle, right? When it's when it's defeated. Uh, it's run through with swords from both sides. So again, this like really unsettling, uh, a lot of overtones to that image, I feel like. Uh, and red blood spurts out. Yeah, which uh, is the first time we've seen anything like that. Um, yeah. Like when 9S is, you know, like disemboweled in the, the prologue, he bleeds a sort of like mechanical fluid, something like white or gray or 
you know, it's it's definitely not blood. Like if anything is, see, like when his leg is gone, like it's rusty and, and sort of acidic almost. Like if you leave a battery in your in something for too long, it just sort of like poops out all over the place. But here it is blood. Like there's, yeah. it's way closer than anything we've seen. Machines don't bleed. Androids don't bleed. But whatever this is, absolutely does. And especially in a world where humanity is supposed to be so precious and we're supposed to be on their side, that should be raising some major red flags. Um, uh, yeah, and then, but the strangest thing maybe is then that this uh, second birth happens. And, and the language of being born again, I feel like, is not not something we're supposed to think about here because it has a kind of spiritual quality to it when out of that wound arises a duplicate a doppelganger yeah, a of the fall it's exactly and and it screams right like the first thing it does is this terrifying scream um which causes a uh, chain reaction the, the entire structure of the apartment is um sort of uh indiana jones style starts to fall in uh crushes the two of them it's it's holding the body that it came out of uh just like 2b was holding 9s right uh and so yeah it's 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 very um i don't know quasi-religious at least there um like the other image that i sort of felt compelled to think about was the the Adam and Eve story that like Eve is formed from Adam's rib um you know yeah like this second being steps out of the the torso of the first but you know instead of this being Adam is peacefully put to sleep but God like quietly while he's asleep you know takes the rib out and makes another person out of it in this case it is violent and it is you know like it is from the wound as you say um you know it's destructive it is perhaps rebirth in the sense of like a resurrection um but also in the sense of you know it's just grotesque um and you know at that point like flipping the script around looking at it from their perspective as you say just as 2p was cradling 9s now we have you know boss one being cradled by boss one B, um, you know, it's hard not to, to personify them, to, to humanize them. As much as 9S has been telling us all this time, you know, they're not human. They're not human. They're not human. They're not human. He's pretty quiet. Once this one shows (laughs) up, like it's real hard to make that case when you're, when you're sitting there staring at this very human thing, you know, something every bit as humanoid as the, the androids up until this point have been, and even more so insofar as it bleeds. Um, yeah. I love, yeah, I love how 9S kind of does a Sephiroth to the Sephiroth being, right? He's the one who stabs it from behind, mm-hmm. runs it through with the sword, and then, uh, you know, 2B does her same kind of move she did to finish off the Goliath, like jumping stabs into from the front. Um, and you you don't feel great about it the way you felt like, oh, that was awesome. We took out the Goliath. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, and 
yeah, the game makes you feel real uh, culpable. I think yeah. about this, uh, even though ultimately, you know, it does kind of bring down the the ruin on itself. Um, and and you, you know, it it probably would have defeated you if there was a round two to this fight. Uh, I don't see how you could beat something like that. But uh, well, plus, you know, then you do and. It's round three. Like, there's no indication <laughs> that there's going to be an end to this. Right. Oh, that's the thing that the robots are saying, too, right? They're like, uh, This cannot continue. This cannot continue. And yeah, it becomes this chorus. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so th that's, that's kind of where this chapter, I guess, leaves off. Um, yeah processing like what did we just see happen uh after you get out of the the collapse um and there's really no resolution to that uh so far anyway um, like the, the closest you get is you know nine s contacts command is like hey we just saw a humanoid machine and they're like oh okay uh we'll uh we'll get into it and that's it like thanks operators <laughs> You guys are always so helpful. Um, <laughs> how's your Jupiter love experiments going on? <laughs> like, um... Yeah, they say stuff about how hard it's going to be to um, to resupply you out there in the desert. They, they, they seem to know the desert is kind of beyond their reach. Um, and you're, you're really kind of on your own when you're on this mission. Um, but... Yeah, kind of like we saw with the first mission, there's just not a lot of um, immediate payoff, really, for what you've, what you've done there. Uh, Jackass, her whole character seems to be built around her not caring, mm -hmm. really, at all. Like, she's too cool for school. Uh, she's like, oh, thanks, or whatever. <laughs> yep, yep. This, the supply guy will thank you in considerably better detail. Like he'll even give you some swag for for clearing things out and restoring supply lines. But Ooh, okay. Yeah, like talking to him, he'll 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 be very grateful and give you some some money and some other good stuff. As well as now he'll like sell parts and stuff to you, um, all to the good. Yeah. So I had a kind of a theory that I'm working on here that. Um, brought up Singer and the ethics uh, of sort of non-humans. Um, I feel like we mentioned last time, too, that the ship of Theseus, represented by the supply guy, um, he's got the one part that's still original, right, and all the rest is prepared. Is there a name for the kind of escalation thing that the, uh, the weapon smith guy is talking about? Um, is there, is that like a reference? Could you say that's a reference to any particular philosophy or philosopher or something like that? Or um, not that I can little... think of, like besides, like you said, escalation as sort of like a game theory concept or something, you know, you, you think of like the, the Cold War philosophy where, you know, it, it's all about making sure that you have the biggest, scariest guns in the hope that that'll deter um, the other people with the big scary guns from attacking you, 
Um, <laughs> like, like I think of, you know, Doctor Strangelove and all those guys sitting around talking about, you know, if you have a doomsday weapon, why would you keep it secret? Um, like, the whole <laughs> point is you tell them so that they won't attack you. Um, yeah. But, yeah. That's a cool reference there, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, I suspect that that one will also prove rather relevant over the course of the game. But, um, but yeah, the, there was... I want to say there was another sort of philosophy for philosophy that I was sort of thinking of as we were going through this, but oh, the Chinese room. That was the one. Um, there's this old philosophical puzzle, uh, sort of like thought experiment called the, the Chinese room. And it's about artificial intelligence and what constitutes actual intelligence. Um, and oh. Yeah. Um, it's been a while since I've studied it, so I'm probably going to botch it, something awful. But in the in the Chinese room analogy, um, there is this room, and you are told that there is like a person in the room, um, and you can feed slips in, like slips of paper with writing on them, and they will come out translated into another language. Um, or, you know, you will get responses to the things that you write, depending on, on what you produce. And the question that you're left with is... Um, how do you know there's a person in the room? Um, right. If all of your interactions are based on, you know, like input output, um, if all of what you what you know about what's behind the locked door is just, you know, what you yourself can see and access on the other side of the door, you can't know. You know, if it's a person or a machine or or anything of that matter, you know, it, it, this relates thoroughly to like Wittgenstein's discussions in the philosophical investigations, where he's sort of asking himself, you know, what constitutes understanding? Like, how do you know that a that a ten year old understands what multiplication is, or are they just like regurgitating a pattern that they don't, you know, full, they haven't fully understood? Um, right. You know, if you tell a kid to, to, like, continue this pattern, one, two, three, four, and the kid says five, is that because they understand the pattern, or are they just reciting the numbers, or, or what? Like, if you say two, four, six, eight, and they say nine, what, what broke down there? Like, what was, the, what was the component? Did they think that, you know, it was the logical continuation of the pattern, or did they think that it was just going to be 2, 3, 2, 4, 6, 8, 9, 11, 13, 15, 16, you know, the pattern is never long enough to justify, you know, there could be a change at any moment. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, we are, we are constantly prevented from understanding what's going on in somebody else's mind. Um, we are only ever looking at. So I um, yeah. I make a lot of phone calls, and I get a lot of like, um, like answering machines that are or not answering machines, like robo answering machines, kind of. Okay. <laughs> and like, um, they have them timed really well. And like the thing I do to like find out if it's a robot or not right away, because they, they're like, mm -hmm. oh, hold on, there's, right, I'll yeah. be right back. Like that kind of thing. I have to go like, what did you have for dinner? Or right. just ask them something like way off the wall. That, but I see what you say. Like, you don't know if that's a person program to uh, respond. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, could be 
Alexis or, you know, who knows? Yeah. Well, that's the great thing. Like, you know, t typically the, the limitation. But, uh, yeah. But yeah, if you, if you like completely break down the context, if you act in a way that is unpredictable, that's usually where you can most obviously identify that you're dealing with something that isn't a person. Hmm. Uh, so is the Chinese room, is that an example of a Turing test, basically? Um, it's sort of, it, it's less an example of like a Turing test so much as recognizing that even the Turing test isn't perfect. Um, okay. It's sort of demonstrating, you know, the, the sheer problem with assuming intelligence. Um, gotcha. That at the end of the day, there's literally no way to discern. Um, like, it could always be a machine. It doesn't matter whether you can tell or not. Like, the Turing test is basically yeah. like, is this a sufficiently complicated AI? The Chinese room is saying there will never be a foolproof way to determine whether it's oh, AI or okay. not. The other example that struck me as I was looking at the playthrough again, um, at some point, uh, Ninus says that some of the weird behavior uh, in the desert, he says, well, you know, they're talking, they're wearing clothes. But before that, back in the, the nice, you know, city, the ruined city, but with life in it, uh, he says sometimes they just stand there and stare into space. And that made me think of kind of the original philosopher Socrates, who is sort of famous for just like stopping and thinking about something so hard that life kind of goes on around him and he's just um, he's just standing there for hours or days right and and thinking. Um, so I like thinking of these little robots as like little little Socrates. Socrates. <laughs> yeah. They are, and we, so to just like peek ahead a little bit, the reason I got on this kind of weird like philosophy hunt is because there's a, a very overt reference uh, in the, the place we're going to get to after the next combat stage. Um, there's a, a certain Jean-Paul uh, <laughs> who has some fans uh, among the robot kind. Yeah. So. And even the, the leader of the community, you'll remember, is also named after oh, a philosopher. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the references are going to start coming in thick and hard in the next couple of areas. Okay. So and they, that's not the, the sum total of them. There will be more to come. And I feel bound to point out here, too, that Steve looked up anemone, and it can be a flower. Okay. It can be it can be the sea creature, but also it can be a flower. Um, uh, jackass, of course, also has sort of two different meanings right. <laughs> that are uh, a bit ambiguous given that character. Um, and Steve also mentioned that we will eventually get a name for this uh, strange birth uh, that we had to fight. Um, but I don't think that we heard that name yet. I, yet. I tried to listen. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think we, so, we did get the coded version of the name. Like, in the in each of the boss fights we've had so far, like, against both the, the Goliath and um, our mystery humanoid machine thing, there's like a, there's like a weird dot language that you can see. Um, oh. 
Yeah, I think that can in fact be deciphered. Um, cool. But yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get the the English version soon enough. Interesting. Um, the uh, the other thing about language that I was curious about, it, and just very cursory searching, says that um, the the language that's sung in most of the music is a kind of invented, um, made-up language. Um, and the singer apparently is like, uh, uh, I think, a, a British person who's grew up in, in Japan or, or something like that. There, there, there's some kind of international story there. So I was going to look up more about that. Um, but I think there are some exceptions where it's... Um, it's just in Japanese for some songs, yes. or or just in English for some songs. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, they'll they'll bop around the the languages quite a bit in the music. Cool. Um, That's making me like wonder. You know, not only are the robots talking, but they're talking in the language that the androids understand, right? Like whatever that language is, I guess for the purposes of localizing your game. Right. Um, they're speaking the same language, right? It's not just yes. speech, but um, but a particular language, which is extra interesting, yeah, I guess. It's uh, much easier to dehumanize someone if the language they're speaking is not one you understand. Um, but also, well, I don't know. That's not the sense that I get from the music, though. Yeah. Right. It's it's a language I don't understand, and yet maybe because it's music, uh, still very affecting. It's very it's very cool. Um, and, and, and evocative, but, uh, but yeah, it's just Did anybody yeah, else like anybody else feel like the music in town was kind of made me want to get out of town more so. Like it wasn't <laughs> as soothing as the music other places. It's got a quality. Kind of made me more anxious. Yeah. Of uh, yeah, like something's about to happen. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a a dusty backwater type of place that you you might not want to linger in too long. Yeah, I could see that. It's also got a jukebox, so I think you can change that music. I like how they did that. Uh -huh. Oh, that's cool. I just like how they did that, because it kind of like keeps you going through the game versus just hanging out in town, but like subconsciously, mm -hmm. almost. <laughs> mm -hmm. I liked it. I liked all, like a lot of the music, and I like the fight, like when you go into fight scene. It's kind of in yes. it's kind of encouraging, so it does its job pretty well. Yes, there there's some very, uh, yeah, like uh, inspiring, stirring, right? Fight music with that that creature in in the apartment. Um, all right. Well, any other stuff from this time around from the desert uh, through the apartments? I thought it was weird how 9S said the the machines were trying to mimic androids and it wasn't oh, it was right. like yeah you know he's like oh well we're based on humans and the machines are now trying to like imitate us and he's just kind of foregoing the fact that maybe they're trying to imitate humans um I don't know if that's kind of like an inflated self-worth that 9S is like giving himself mm -hmm. um I thought that was kind of interesting um, that he thought uh, that the machines were definitely trying to imitate them. Um, <laughs> and then I did find another interesting ending this time. Oh, okay. uh, so this time, apparently, 
if you use the self-destruct in the bunker, um, you basically it says by self-destructing at the bunker, the entire structure ended up exploding in a spectacular fashion, but hey, it sure did look pretty from Earth. Wow. That's cool. Somewhere, there's more. Somewhere in the depths of space, the commander still floats about with a stern look on her face. <laughs> That's wonderful. What ending is that? Yeah, did it get older? Yeah, if you use your self-destruct feature um, on the bunker, it blows everything up, apparently. Did it get a little though? Like, a, like, I know you said it was, like, W if you, um, uh, if you like, died in the first, you know, in the run-up to yeah. the Goliath. I forget what the, what the name of it is, but, yeah, there's a letter. It might, it might be T or something. I, you know, going forward, I think I'm going to try to find one of these uh, weird <laughs> endings week. Um, yeah, I'm starting to think that there might be a full complement, like all, all 26 letters at some point. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. So, um, there were, I actually did find another one, but I'll save that till next week, so. Yeah, just <laughs> just in, in case, case you don't find a new one. Right, yep, good call. Right on. I love it. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, so playing for, again on Tuesday? Yeah. yeah. All right, I was going to make it. Sorry, I watched it afterwards. Thank you for posting it. Oh, yeah. No problem. I yeah, I, like I said, I, I was re-watching it, too. To like refresh. Um, for this time, through the uh, through the amusement park? Or, or in park. The, and I, I figure okay. we might as well go on into the, the village. Like, I suspect. Into the village, will, okay. Yeah, the two will be a decent con or contrast. Um, and I think cool. the next big events is after the village stuff. So, yeah. Okay. Right on. So that's for next time. Um, well, yeah, keep playing. I guess it, you know, at your own pace, whatever that might be. Check out the Twitch stream mm -hmm. if you want to follow along. Um, yeah, more reading and stuff. Um, I can poke around. I found some interesting like lists of stuff. Um, so I'm going to be. Kind of reviewing those, but then there's Isomnium, uh, and we we wanted to do our first like attack defense using Isomnium, right, as a uh, as a, a text. Since I was so. definitely operating as detractor on this one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you will be the aggressor, and Steve will be running until he can't run away anymore, and then he'll have to turn and fight. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, defend his his home yep. <laughs> in Iceland. Um, yeah, we can do that for for another time. I'm not sure exactly when, but something to look forward to. Yep. All right, cool. Well, thanks all. Take care out there. See you next time. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Thank you.